up to the Gospel of John, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to talk about John, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. So let let me begin with this question. Uh, Besides our Lord Jesus Christ, who would you say is the greatest person to have ever lived? Greatest person to have ever lived. Of course, we know that no one compares with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was sinless. He accomplished in his life and death the most important feat in the history of the world. But besides our Lord Jesus, who do you think was the greatest person to ever walk the earth? Well, the top tens is a website. That creates top ten lists for almost every subject you could possibly imagine. And the lists are compiled as people from all over the world make their submissions and vote. And so, sure enough, one of their top ten lists is greatest person ever. And hundreds of thousands of people have voted. Interestingly, on that list, Jesus is in second place. Um, With 176,000 votes, 7% of the vote, Muhammad, is in first place. Jesus has 6% of the vote. And then after him, also with 6% of the vote, is B.R. Ambedkar, the man who helped lead India to independence and helped create the constitution of the nation of India. Buddha is in fourth place. Mahatma Gandhi is in fifth. Albert Einstein and Mother Teresa are also in the top ten. Of course, we understand that greatness is not determined by votes on the Internet. Uh, What we have there is simply a window into the current thinking of our world. But human opinion is not the standard of true greatness. It is God and God alone who determines true greatness. It is God himself who is most truly great. And it is those who are marked by godliness who are the greatest. But it is worth pointing out that there is a name that did not make this top 10 list. He didn't even make the top 50. Or as far as I know, he's not even on any of the lists. George Washington made the top 50. Moses made the top 50. Thomas Edison made the top 50. Martin Luther King Jr., Karl Marx, Leonardo da Vinci, even Michael Jackson made the top 50. This man didn't make the list. And yet in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, our Lord Jesus Christ will say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. In the estimation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at least from Adam until his day, he set John the Baptist above all others as the very greatest of men. And that should grab our attention. Uh, That should say to us, I need to pay attention to this fella named John. I, I need to see what marked him. I need to see what it was about this man that caused the very son of God, the greatest man, to esteem John so 
highly. If you want to live a life of greatness for God, then it makes sense that you would want to set your eyes on John and find out what made him the man that he was. And let me give you a hint. What made John great is probably not what you will expect. Everything that the world looks at and calls greatness, these are not what made John great. Uh, Let's look at our text this morning. Let's hear the great birth announcement that came to John's dad, Zechariah. You'll remember from last time, Zechariah is in the temple. It was already the most momentous day of his life. It was the one day in his life when he would get to walk into the temple, into the holy place. Zechariah has burned incense on the altar before God on behalf of Israel. He is praying for the nation. And suddenly there in the temple, an angel appears. And not just any angel, it's the angel Gabriel. And though Zechariah and his dear wife Elizabeth are very old, Gabriel says they're going to have a son. And as Gabriel speaks to Zechariah about this miracle son he's going to have, we learn a great deal about the characteristics that are going to mark this choice servant of God. So let's begin reading in verse 13. Verse 13 of Luke 1. This is the very word of God. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, this morning we're going to focus on four characteristics of John that we find in verses 13, 14, and 15. And as we do, I think you'll see that there are some pretty important implications for us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first and most obvious, we see that this child's name will be John. His name will be John. And that's actually pretty surprising to the folks around Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, We will see later in this chapter that people are confused When they find out that Zechariah wants his son to be named John. Because there's nobody in Zechariah or Elizabeth's close family who had that name. Jewish families tended to pass down family names. But for this family, John was not a family name. And yet the angel, this messenger of God, is clear. You shall call his name John. In other words, this is God's decision, not Zechariah's decision. This is God's appointed name for this child. Now, it's interesting to me, Luke does not make a big deal about the meaning of this name. Luke doesn't even draw our attention to the meaning of this name. But you should know that the name John means 
Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And so here is the one appointed by God to prepare the way for the Savior of the world. Here is the one who will make the people ready for the Redeemer, who will give his life for sinners. And his name is very appropriate, isn't it? Yahweh is gracious. For Luke, however, it seems that the meaning of John's name is less important than the fact that it is God who gives it. In the Bible, when someone gives a name, it's a way of showing authority. This is why God names Adam. And then God allows Adam to name Eve as a sign of the husband's authority in the home. And then we have the animals brought to Adam, and Adam names the animals to show man's God-given authority over creation. When a pagan nation conquered Israel, the pagan nation's king would often rename the king over Israel to show that he had authority over him. Uh, We see this time and again when the Babylonians come, and for a while they they are reigning over Judah as a vassal state. The king of Babylon renames the king of Judah. As a way of saying, I have authority over you and you will reign as long as I allow you to reign. Of course, throughout history, it's parents who typically choose the name of their children. It's one way that we see the parent's authority over the child. The child doesn't choose his or her own name. The parents choose the name. But here, rather than Zechariah getting to choose the name of his son, God declares what the name shall be. And this shows that this baby is going to be particularly God's. That God owns everything and everyone. The whole earth is his. But this child is going to be particularly God's. This child will be particularly given to God, devoted to God. He will have his heart set from his youth on doing the will of God. John will be God's appointed child for an appointed purpose at an appointed time. And you say, okay, Justin, that's interesting. Does it have anything to do with us? And of course it does. Because it is not only John the Baptist who receives a name specially chosen by God. Listen to Isaiah 56, verse 5. God promises this. He says, I will give in my house And within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So God says that within his house, and remember, we the people of God, we are the temple. Christians are the house of God. He says he's going to give a name better than sons and daughters. Now now think of how wonderful it is. To have a name given to you by your parents. Think of how glorious it is to be a son, to be a daughter, to to show that as you live with the name that your parents have given you. And yet God says he has a better name prepared for us. A name that will never be cut off. I do not fully know what that means. Uh, I will not claim to have full understanding of what God is saying there. But I think it at least means That we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that surpasses that of any relationship of a child to their earthly parents. 
God is our Father in a higher way, a better way, and for eternity, we will wear that special name that He is our Father in His love has given to us. And so listen to Isaiah 62, verse 2, and just marvel at what God says here. He says to us, His people, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Whatever that means, that that sounds wonderful, right? And, And we're given a little more help in knowing what it means when John picks up that verse in Revelation 2 verse 17 where we're told that God will give to the one who conquers, the one who holds fast to Christ till the end, quote, a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the message is that at the end of your life, if you persevere to the end and you hold fast to Christ, you will enter the glories of heaven and you're going to receive, and the picture is of a white stone with a new name given to you by God that no one else knows. Uh, in the ancient Olympics, a white stone was presented to the winners of the contest with their names engraven on the stone. And so that's the picture in Revelation that you've won the race, you've, you've, you've come to victory, you've held fast to Christ to the end, and God's going to give you a white stone, a stone of victory, and on it will not be the name that your parents gave you, as special as that name is. God's going to give you a stone with a name specifically and specially and divinely chosen by Him for you. Now, you're not going to lose your old name. You're not going to cease to be you. You're not going to lose the name given to you by your parents. But here will be something even more precious. A sign of God's fatherly love for you throughout the years of eternity. Just like John, you are going to be given a divinely given name. And I'm scared to say any more because the Bible doesn't really tell us more about that. It gives us about that much and that's it. So we'll see one day what all that means and what that looks like. Number two, we learn in this passage that this child will be great. So do you see that in verse 15, right? So we've said John the Baptist, he's going to be marked by greatness. And I know you probably don't know a lot of Greek. I don't know as much Greek as I wish I did, but this is one Greek word we all know. It's the word mega, M-E-G-A. Mega. Literally in the Greek, it says John will be mega. So you can go and you can get a small-sized Coke or a medium-sized Coke or a large-sized Coke or you can get the mega Coke, right? To be mega is to be the largest, the highest, the greatest. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, your son is going to be mega. But how? How will John be mega? Well, Some suggest that John is going to be mega in his role. That is, in God's story of history, most of us play very minor parts. Most of us are are bit actors, right? We have very small roles to play in this story that God is playing out in history. And then there are some 
like Noah or Samuel, who get to play really important parts. But some suggest that John's role in history is mega, right? That his role is a very important role. John the Baptist will have a very important place in the history of our world. And that's very true. And we will talk more next time about the mission that that God gave to John. It was certainly a very important mission. I don't think that's what our verse is saying here. I don't think it's saying John will be mega in his role. And I say that for two reasons. First, in verse 15, it doesn't just say that John will be great. It says he will be great before the Lord. So the emphasis seems to be on John as a man. John as he lives before the face of God. This seems to be more, in my opinion, more of a comment about the character of John as he fulfills God's will for his life. He will be great before the Lord. And then second, I think it has more to do with his character than his role because of the teaching of Jesus in Luke 7, verse 28. That's the verse I quoted earlier, where Jesus says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. I stopped early. That is, I didn't give you the whole verse. I kind of fooled you a little bit. I want you to hear the rest of what Jesus says. Luke 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So do you you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you hear God's definition of greatness? Do you want to be greater than John? Jesus says, go lower. Put others before you. Count others more significant than yourself. Give yourself fully to the cause of God and the glory of his name. Here is what made John the Baptist great. He counted himself insignificant compared to the cause that he was living for and the people he was seeking to reach. In the kingdom of Christ, the way to go up is to go down. The way to be great is to humble yourself. In fact, the moment that you're walking around concerned for your own glory, you're already on the wrong track. John did not walk around the wilderness trying to be the greatest. He was living his life devoted to the service of God. He was living in the joy of his calling. He was living uh, in the desire to fulfill his purpose and to live for the name of the one who called him. God would be the center of the devotion of John's life. Do you remember how later the followers of John the Baptist began to break away from him and to follow the Lord Jesus? And in John 3, some of John's followers come to him. They say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And how does John respond to this? Now, wait a minute. Jesus is baptizing. That's my thing. I'm John the Baptist. Is that what he says? No. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, here's what made John so great. He knew that his whole life's purpose was to point to Christ. Rather than caring about his own glory, rather than caring about his own fame, he says, this joy of mine is now complete. How? Because people are leaving me and going to Jesus. And that's what I want. That's what I'm about. I want to be a life that is an arrow pointing to him. And if people look at me and they go to him, yes, people being baptized in Jesus' name, that's what I want. That's the mission I've been about the whole time. So Mount Hermon, you see the application for us to be truly great, the way John would be great, the way Jesus is greatest of all, is to lay down your life for others. It's to know the joy of living in the service of others. It is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and to live in that love. Now, Herman, don't buy into the world's notion of greatness. Don't think that it's money or possessions or fame or titles that make you great. True greatness is godliness. True greatness is a heart of love for God and others that causes you to sacrifice whatever it takes to serve them and to point others towards the glory of Christ. Pursue that kind of greatness with every fiber of your being. Number three. Number three. We see here that John would be fully consecrated to God. Fully consecrated to God. Do you see the reference to wine and strong drink in verse 15? We're told he must not drink wine nor strong drink. Wine referred to alcoholic drinks made from grapes. Strong drink typically referred to other alcoholic beverages like beer made from barley. And God put a prohibition upon John's life that from the beginning he was not to touch any of these. What is that about? Well, when we look to the Old Testament, we find that abstinence from alcohol was a mark of devotedness to God. More than that, it was particularly a mark of preparedness for God's special service. Um, the passage that seems most parallel to the one here comes from Leviticus 10, beginning in verse 8, which says this. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, the high priest, saying, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. So there was a command for the priests who would go into the tent of meeting and later the temple and God never commanded that the priest had to always abstain from alcohol. He never commanded that his people in general should always abstain from alcohol. But he did command his priests that they were not to dabble in wine or strong drink when they were fulfilling their priestly duties. Priests were always to carry out their sacred duties with sobriety, with clear heads, with strong minds. How important was it that priests be sober? 
when they came to serve before God, God says, lest you die. In other words, if a priest dared to even dabble in wine or strong drink before coming to the temple, he was risking his neck. And I should mention that this command comes in Leviticus 10 immediately after God has just struck down the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, because they did not worship God with reverence and with carefulness. Uh, There's another Old Testament passage that helps us make sense of this. Number six, God establishes a special kind of vow that Israelites could make to particularly dedicate themselves to God for a period of time. You've probably heard about this. It was called the Nazarite vow. Here's what God said about this special vow in number six, beginning in verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. And shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. And so you see the picture. When when an Israelite wanted to devote a certain season of his or her life to special service to God, that vow was to include putting aside these alcoholic drinks. Well, here in Luke 1, we have something extraordinary. John the Baptist isn't to to restrain himself from alcohol for a season. We're told that his entire life was to be one of abstinence. Why? Because his whole life was to be given to special, focused, wholehearted, full-throttle, single-minded devotion to God. He was to be always set apart for devoted service to God. Is there an implication here for us? I do think that there is. And I think the implication is that there are many things in this world that by themselves may be lawful and good, but they can hinder us from giving our all to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So you have callings that God has placed on your life. You have missions that God has given you to to fill in your family. You have callings from God as a husband or wife, a father or mother, a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister. And God has called called you to fulfill that role for his glory. You have callings as far as the work that God has given you to do, whatever that might be. You have callings as a church member, callings related to the unique gifts and talents God has given you. You have callings as far as unique opportunities God has brought into your life. Is there anything in your life that is distracting you from giving your best to these callings? Is there anything that is taking up your time or clogging up your mind or limiting your energy or your ability? Indeed, God forbid, is there anything that's beginning to dominate you? Can you go five minutes without looking at your phone? Can you go a week without watching television? Your phone and your television can be very good things, but not if they're keeping you from giving your all to Christ. 
Not if they're keeping you from things that matter more. Good books, time spent with other believers, or acts of obedience that you know you should be doing. We each need to examine our own lives and before God ask, is there anything that God would have me give up that I might be more ready and equipped to serve Him? Maybe it is alcohol in your case. Or maybe it's some hobby that's become too much of a distraction rather than a refreshment. Um, Just like your house needs regular decluttering, so does your soul and so does your life. Ask God what he would have you to remove from your life that you might be more productive as a servant of him. Well, fourth, or near the end, we see that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 15? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And perhaps what's most amazing is that he's going to be filled with the Spirit even as he is being formed in his mother's womb. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to give you very quickly five truths related to this point, each of which could be their own sermon. So we're going to go as quickly as we can. Number one, it will be the Spirit of God who will be the source of John's godly character. In other words, at bottom, why will John have such humility? Why will John rejoice to see his followers going after Jesus? What will cause John to have such a selfless spirit and a heart that puts others above himself? It will be the Spirit of God that makes John the man that he is. It is the Holy Spirit who works godly virtues and godly characteristics into the lives of his people. It is the Holy Spirit who brings grace into the hearts of believers and begins weaving that grace into their souls, causing them to grow in spiritual fruit. Now, Herman, if if you want to be like John, and I hope you do, be a person of prayer, pleading with the Spirit of God, come fill me, come work in me, come cause fruit to abound in me. The Holy Spirit is a great gardener. He can produce the choicest fruits from the soil of your heart. We're talking blue ribbon at the state fair quality fruits here, okay? Uh, The Holy Spirit is not incapable of making you a person of love and patience and gentleness and kindness. Pray. Ask that he will. He did it in John. He's going to do it in you. Ultimately, one day you're going to be like Christ. Ask that he would speed up that work and cause that work to abound in your soul. Number two, it will be the Spirit of God who will be the one that equips John for his special mission. So throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God come upon people so that they can fulfill a special mission that God has given them. In Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes upon the whole church of Christ to empower her for her mission to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Whatever God calls a person to do, he sends the Spirit of God to empower them to do it. And so John is being empowered for his ministry by the Spirit. John is going to be a powerful prophet. It's the Spirit who's going to give him the words. It's going to be the spirit that causes John to be bold in the face of wicked leaders like the Pharisees or even Herod. It was the spirit who's going to cause John to preach passionately and lovingly, calling on his his fellow men and women to turn from their sins and to trust the Messiah. 
In the same way, whatever callings God has placed on your life, you can be sure of this, dear Christian. You have received the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came to you at the moment of your conversion. He made a home in your heart, and He is at work within you to equip you. There is no task God has given you that you have to face in your own strength alone. No, you are to face every task God has given you with the knowledge that Jesus is with you and in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you to equip you for whatever calling God has given you. Third, we see that it is the Spirit and not strong drink that is to be the power of the Christian life. Right? There's that contrast in our passage. He's not to be filled with wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Spirit. We see that in Acts 2 at Pentecost. When people think the apostles are drunk. And Peter says, no, it's still morning time. What are you talking about? No, he says, Jesus has sent to us the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit that's causing us to prophesy and to speak and to fulfill the great mission He has given us. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So in the ancient world, wine was seen as the elixir of gods. People would drink wine, they would get drunk, and then in their drunken states, they would worship false gods and all sort of wicked and sexually immoral acts. And people believed that wine was a means by which to communicate with the divine. That when they got into these drunken states, they would have these ecstatic experiences. And that that was how they were able to relate to the gods. That is not Christianity. Our Savior says, do not be filled with strong drink or wine. Rather, it is by the Spirit of God that we commune with God. It is by the Spirit of God that we're able to relate to Him. And engage with him. Another version of this, I think of Bob Marley and the Rastafarians. You know, Bob Marley was a Rastafarian, and uh, they're on the island of, of Jamaica, and they believe that marijuana is the sacred plant. And that as they smoked marijuana and got high, they believe that in that ecstatic experience, that's how they communicated and communed with God. That is. It's paganism. That's paganism. It's pure deception. Jesus says, the Bible says, it is the Spirit of God who is the power for life and godliness. And we're going to stop. I have two more truths, but we will just save them for the beginning of, of next time. May God help each one of us to look to Christ, to rest in Him, and to be engaged in the power that He gives us by His Spirit as we seek to fulfill the callings he's given us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.